Well, church, if you will, take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 John, almost there at the end of your Bible, the end of the New Testament, the book of 1 John. Our text today will be chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. We have embarked in a journey through the early part of this summer through this letter of John, 1 John. Thankful for our time together in this book. And uh, much to take uh, from all that John wrote, encouraged, exhorted the readers of this letter and how through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit we have it today preserved for us to be encouraged by and in. So 1 John chapter 2, I want to pick up in verse 3. These are the words of John inspired by the Holy Spirit. John writes, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray now for help in understanding all that you have for us in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a Christian, has there ever been a time or a season where you've ever wondered if you're really a Christian? Have doubts and uncertainties ever crept in your mind? I think every Christian has experienced that at some point or another or will. And it can be a common experience even for those who have a right understanding of the gospel. Well, the good news is, is you've, if you've ever wrestled with this question, the Bible does give us help. It gives us help so that we can have a confidence in our standing before God as a Christian. Assurance of salvation is a gift of God, but one we often struggle to attain. J.C. Ryle, in his book on holiness, wrote that, that assurance enables a man to, quote, always feel that he, is, that he has something solid beneath his feet and something firm under his hands. A sure friend by the way and a sure home at the end. So this sure friend, Jesus, and this sure home, heaven, is a gift and blessing that God delights in giving us as his people. When it comes to Christian assurance, 
Like the Bible gives us at least three ways that we're able to obtain it. One way is by believing in and trusting God's promises. Romans 8, 33 and 34 come to mind. Paul writes, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So forth. Paul's reminding us that it's Christ, in Christ that we are justified. It's not by anything that we do. It's Jesus that justifies us. By believing in that, by believing in his promises. And for that's the, that's the most important question. When it comes even to the, the issue of assurance of salvation, the question is, who or what are you trusting in? If you're not believing in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, then you should have no confidence as a Christian. Is he the source of your hope, the ground of your faith? Too often we're looking to something within us or something else to solidify our hope, our assurance but only Jesus can save you and only Jesus can grant you that right standing before God. So by believing and entrusting the promises of God is one way that we obtain the assurance of salvation. A second way is the inward witness of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 15 and 16, where he talks about how the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There is this inward witness of the Holy Spirit who's taken up residence within us that confirms and affirms our identity as the children of God. There is this inward witness of the Spirit of God. But there's also a third way that we can attain assurance and that is through the outward witness of a Godward life. And it's that third element that John zeroes in on this morning. He's, he's coming to help us see that the, the outward witness of a Godward life ought to give some sense of assurance for you as a Christian as you strive to live in a way that God has called you. Remember, John is writing this letter with such people in mind. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, at the end, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. I've written these things, he says, these things, all the, all the things that are in the book. I've written them that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, this morning we are continuing with these things that John wrote with specific reference to this very issue of assurance. In fact, our passage begins with that priority in verse three. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. The point of this passage this morning, the point I think that John makes throughout this book is that Brothers and sisters, you can have confidence regarding your identity as a Christian. You can have confidence in that. You can have assurance. To be clear, before some of y'all nod off, just to be clear, the focus today is not how one becomes a Christian. 
If you're hearing in my sermon today, this is how I become a Christian, you're not hearing me right. I'm not talking about how you become a Christian. I'm talking about how you are confirmed in your Christianity and how you find assurance as a Christian. Okay, that's what we're talking about, assurance. We're looking at certain traits, certain fruits of a believer that give us assurance about our standing before God as a Christian. That's the target, that's what we're zeroing in on this morning. And what we find here in this passage in 1 John 2, three through 11, are three signs that characterize the one who has true saving faith. These are three characteristics, three fruits, if you will, that characterize someone who has true saving faith. True saving faith, what are they? Well, the first one is this. Someone who has true saving faith is someone who has a love for God's commandments. A love for God's commands. John says in verse three, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Pretty straightforward. Again, he is not saying this is how you come to know him. He says this is how we can know we have come to know him. There's a big difference. And too often we confuse these things and so, so we, we need not confuse them. He's not saying here's how you become a Christian. He's saying, here's how you know you are a Christian. If we keep his commandments. Contrast that to the person in verse four that says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments. That person, John says, is a liar and the truth is not in him. So his point is clear. The person who claims to know God must walk in the ways of God, particularly in the keeping of commandments. Question then becomes, what does he mean by commandments? Is he referring to the 10 commandments? Is he referring to the 400 plus other commandments we have in the Old Testament? Is there a new list of commandments that we've missed somewhere along the way? I think to get at the heart of this commandment language, it's important to compare verse three with verse five. In verse three, he says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, and he says, the one who says, I know him, but doesn't, that's a liar. Look at verse five, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So, so you see there, he's talking about keeping commandments and keeping his word. They're used synonymously. And as such, I think it can be easily deduced that anything the Bible teaches, that anything that Christ has handed down through his apostles could be included here. So keeping commandments is another way that we're speaking of keeping the word of God, obeying the scriptures, following the truth. There are two things when we think about this phrase, keeping his commandments, that that, that involves. And I want us to, to see this. Two things that this includes. Number one, it includes our attitude. Our attitude. The word keep there in verse Three, the word keep refers to looking upon something as your treasure and guarding it. That's the idea. You see something is valuable and you're guarding it. 
The imperative then here is that God gives us, the imperative in, in, this, in this command, keep, is, is for us to obey, but not merely a list of do's and don'ts. It's not merely this cold obedience. Do this, don't do that. That's not behind this idea of keep. Remember, this idea is, is a treasuring of. We're being called here not only to follow the commands of God, we're called to treasure them, to value them. So a genuine Christian is not merely an admirer, admirer of God's truth, not merely someone who complies with it, but someone who delights in it, who loves it. Listen, God does not call us to a cold obedience. Just do this, because I said so. Listen to how God's word describes the attitude of those who keep the commands of God. In Psalm 40, verse eight, the psalmist says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. In Psalm 112, verse one says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Psalm 119, 10 times at least in this Psalm, this word delight shows up and one of them is in verse 14. Psalm 119, verse 14, in your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. So the testimony of scripture is not merely here are commands, obey them. No, the testimony of scripture is here are commands, delight in them, love them, treasure them, see them as valuable, guard them, keep them. So brothers and sisters, if we are going to keep God's commandments, then, then God's word must be our delight, our treasure. And friends, I think the word itself by the Holy Spirit of God is that which cultivates that delight. The more you engage God's word, the more you will delight in it. So I think a simple question just to pause and ask ourselves this morning is, is do you see God's word as a delight? Or do you see it more as a drudgery? <laughs> do you delight in the scriptures? Or do you just call it a good day if you're just able to read it? He's calling us to something more. He's calling us to treasure, to value, to delight in the truth. So brothers and sisters, what are you doing to cultivate a delight in the word of God? It impacts our attitude, it affects our attitude, it involves our attitude, are we delighting in the word? And certainly number two, our actions. While this idea of keeping God's word includes our affections, it obviously includes our actions. Now we know that no one keeps the word of God perfectly. So the idea here is not, if you sin, then suddenly you have no assurance. That's not, not the idea here. Remember the language of walking from earlier, earlier in, the, in, the, in chapter one, this idea of walking we find throughout John's letter implies the trajectory or the overall manner of one's life. What tends to characterize you? Is it a desire? a striving to keep God's word? If so, then be encouraged. 
That's what Christians do. They delight in it. Although they may not keep it perfectly, they want to. They delight, they, they want to obey God. That's the way of the Christian. I think it's good for us to, to think about the relationship between the Christian and God's word. And a good way to think about that is to consider whether or not your life is increasingly being governed by the scriptures. Not perfectly being governed, but increasingly being governed, governed by the scriptures, by God's word. Is it the habit of your life to be regularly in the scriptures and willingly submit your life to it? Think about this past week. Can you point, this past week, can you point to an example where God's word informed a decision you needed to make, a desire you needed to change or cultivate, a prayer you needed to pray, etc.? Can you think, just, I'm not gonna go to the day to day, just the week, this past week. Was there a moment that the word of God informed you and led you to, to, to some action? The answer for all Christians ought to be yes. True Christians will spend regular time reading and prayerfully applying the scripture to areas of their life. Not perfectly, no, but consistently and increasingly, yes. I think one good habit for your regular Bible reading is to commit regularly to not closing your Bible until you know at least one thing God would have you do in response to your reading. Something new to believe, a habit to begin or break, a prayer to offer, a spiritual discipline to practice, an attitude to change, a decision to make, etc. This is how God's word, this is, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about keeping the, the word of God, keeping the commands of God. It means reading, receiving, meditating upon it so that it affects us in ways that make us look more and more like Jesus. So our affections and our actions are impacted so that we keep God's word. Do you have a love for God's commands? That's test number one. Number two, do you have a love for God himself? Second trait of a true Christian, someone who has true saving faith, is that that person will have a love for God. The keeping of God's commands speaks to a delight in his commands, but that delight, that love, that passion goes further, goes beyond the commands. John says in verse five, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. What we have here is the first reference to love in 1 John, which is a word that's going to dominate this book here forward. And he says the person that keeps God's commands is someone in which the love of God is perfected. Now we have to stop right there and ask this question, what is the love of God referring to? Is it God's love for us or our love for him? And the truth of the matter is it can be taken either way, the way it's written. And both realities are addressed in the book. 
So you're like, well, I don't really know, and so I'm going to look at the broader context. Well, both are, are dealt with throughout the book of First, the letter of First John. One thing I think we, we need to say, though, is that this love, whichever direction John is intending, it is not saying that something is lacking in God's love. What I think John is saying here is that God's love, God, God has perfected his love in a person when they love him and that that love for him is being demonstrated in the keeping of his commands. What we see here, and the reason I think it's referring to our love for him is because it falls right between this phrase, whoever keeps his word in verse six, whoever walks in the same way in which he walked. The love of God is being perfected. It means this, the love God has for us has now impacted us so that our love for him is demonstrated in the keeping of his commandments. We know that God's love for us is one that results in the believer loving God and desiring to, to please him, to obey him. And we know that our obedience to him is an expression of our love for God. First John chapter five, verse three, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. If you were to go to John chapter 14, John's gospel, same John, back in the gospels, John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Same theme is repeated two other times in that same chapter. Loving God, keeping his commandments. So it seems here that in 1 John 2, this reference to the love of God being perfected is, is that our love for him is being matured as it's demonstrated through the keeping of his commandments. So as you think about your Christian walk, your Christian assurance, the first test had to do with your attitude and your obedience to God's commands. Now John's talking about your love for God himself. Remember when the Pharisees tried to trip Jesus up by asking him what was the greatest commandment, his reply was what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It was his first response, love of God, as he summarizes that first table of the law. Now we know that people do things in life for many different reasons. There's at least three reasons that motivate someone to action. One, because they have to do it. One, because they need to do it. Or another, because they want to do it. It's that third motivation, it's that third, that third reason for the Christian that we should be after. Mature obedience flows from love of God, love for God. Our motive in obedience should be a love, not just for the commandment, but for the one who gives it. Listen, if you are not obeying God out of love for him, then whatever your love is, is an immature love. It's an incomplete love in that regard. People obey God all the time with wrong motives. <laughs> They're fearful. If I don't do this, I might get struck by lightning kind of mentality. They're doing it out of trying to appease him in a certain way, or maybe worse, to manipulate God. God, you kind of owe me here because I did this. Or they do it because, so they can boast. There's all kinds of bad reasons for obedience. What we're getting at here is, is the right reason, the right motive, the right thing that should fuel our obedience to God is a love for God. It's that which characterizes the true Christian. 
keeping God's commands should stem from a heart of love for God. And that love will grow over time. It continues to mature over time. Now, remember, this obedience, the keeping of God's word, is not the pathway to salvation, but the evidence of salvation. God does not say, I will give you salvation if you love me enough. That's not in the Bible. No one would be saved if that was true. God doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I will save you if you love me enough. He says, I love you despite how bad you are. I demonstrated my love for you in the sending of my son to be your savior, to bear the burden of your own sin and pay the penalty for the sin, to, to die in your place as a substitute, to be dead for three days and be then raised from the dead to show victory over the grave. God says, I love you to, to do that for you. And this act of grace that he gives us then births within us a love that matures as we follow him in faithfulness. As this love-driven obedience becomes the mark, the characteristic of our life, we can then grow in Christian assurance. So a love for God's commands and a love for God himself are two traits of a believer, someone who has true saving faith. These things ought to characterize your life in some capacity, some increasingly growing capacity. But then number three, what is the third one? Well, it's a love for God's people. A love for God's commands, a love for God himself, and a love for God's people. It's a third evidence of a person who has true saving faith, and we see that here in verses 7 through 11. John picks up in verse 7, reminding his readers that the one who knows God must walk as Jesus did, delighting in and following God's word, this, that this idea is not new. It's an old commandment. It's there in the old covenant. This idea that a love for God drives obedience to his commands, which is a proof of our love for God, that was foundational in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Right there in the law, the Old Testament law, we find this, this love-driven obedience that's present. So it's not an old command that he's calling us to. And we know that even the, the love he calls us to is not just centered on God. It's also a love for neighbor. In Leviticus chapter 19, we see that we're called to a love of neighbor. Both of these, love of God, love of neighbor. Jesus summarized, summarized it when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He, he's saying, well, the old covenant shows us that a love for God and a love for neighbor are what we're called to. That's not new. John says, it's been there from the beginning. Both were established in the old covenant. So on one hand, it's not a new command, but on the other hand, it is a new command, he says, right? You see that there? The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the light is already shining. How are these themes of love, love of God, love of neighbor, new? As, say, as it says in verse 8. 
I think the reason it's new is because the arrival of Jesus, when he came, the, the fulfillment of God coming into the world through the Messiah, when the Son of God comes into the world, the reason this is a new command is now because Jesus sheds light, the coming of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus sheds new light on how this call to love is to be lived out. It's not as if the old command has now ceased to exist. The reason it's new is it's been further developed, it's been further expanded. Light has been shined upon this command through the arrival of Jesus. He gives new light and meaning to the command. And as we come to know him and walk with him, he's the light of the world, then love will be an expression of who we are, our love of one another, our love of neighbor. Jesus says that, doesn't he, in John chapter 13? A new command I give you, a new command I give you, that you love one another. Well, we know that's not new, per se. It's there in Leviticus, love of neighbor. But it's new in the sense that he's calling us to a unique love of one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, that now he helps embody and, and demonstrate. And he says, by this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This call to love, to love one another, is not only assuring evidence of salvation, it's also a witness to the world. John goes further to address this matter of loving our brother, which serves as a validity of our profession. And, he, and, and this test of love is a big deal as we see in verses nine and 10. He says, whoever says he is in the light. It's kind of similar to, to what John said earlier. Whoever says I know God, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. Similar thing here. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother. He gives a specific example of that, doesn't he? Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever says, I know God, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. Whoever says, I love God, I love him. I'm in the light, but I hate my brother. Well, that person is actually in, reveals that they're still in the darkness. Hatred is not something that has a place among God's people. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother, though, abides in the light. This is a distinguishing Christian identity marker of how you love one another. A lack of love in your heart for other believers is evidence of darkness, not the light. So as you're walking through, just, just trying to evaluate, as, as Peter calls us to examine ourselves, right? To, to examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith, as you're examining, as you're evaluating, as you're kind of considering your own walk with Jesus, is there hatred in your heart for another? If hatred exists, that's not of the light. He's contrasting the two. The one who hates is in darkness, walks in darkness, does not know where he's going, he's blind. You see that in verse 11. Hatred in the human heart is a mark of darkness, not a mark of light. And so friend, if you have hatred in your heart for another, that is not something that should assure you of your salvation, it's something that should be alarming to you. I'm not talking about those who frustrate you, 
who irritate you. I'm talking about hatred. Hatred. Like that's not a Christian thing. That's not a fruit of the Spirit. Two things about the one who loves, though, in contrast. The one who loves abides in the light, lives as a Christian. Jesus is the light of the world. The one who loves, as Jesus loved, reveals that they're like Jesus. And they give no cause for stumbling. He walks in a way, in the way of Christ, and does not sin in this way. Don Whitney, in his book, 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health, Regarding love, he said this, he said, love is the badge and character of Christianity. A Christian may advance in many areas, including the ability to witness, teach, or preach, have biblical insight and knowledge, or faith, or service, and giving, but these mean little without growth in the most important Christian distinctive, love. You can know a lot of things about the Bible and lack love and be in the darkness. This is what Paul said about love. We know, probably have heard this chapter read, probably at a wedding, but it has so much more implication for, for our lives as Christians beyond a wedding. Not that it doesn't dis, not include that, it includes so much more. This is part of who we are as a Christian. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then later on Paul says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Brothers and sisters, you can do all kinds of things for Jesus. You can have the greatest theological knowledge on the planet. You can have the best witnessing approach in the world. And if you lack love, you are nothing. Nothing before God. Is it evident Going back to Christian assurance, is it evident in your life that you love others well? Would people say that about you? Think about the passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Does that resonate? When people read that, do they see your picture? Is your love patient? Is it kind? Is it not envious, not arrogant, not rude? Do you insist on your own way or do you prefer for others better than yourself, more than yourself? 
Are you easily irritable and resentful? You see, love can be a hard thing. I realize that. Love can be a hard thing, but it's a distinctly Christian thing we are called to walk in. A love of others. A love for God's people is an identity marker for those who have true saving faith. Assurance of salvation can sometimes seem fleeting. You wonder, do I bear enough fruit of the Spirit? Have I confessed enough sins, repented sufficiently? Is my faith strong enough? And those of us who tend to obsess with introspection, and some of us in this room tend to obsess with that, some of you don't do enough of it, and some of you do too much of it. There's a, there's a balance in there somewhere. But those of us who tend to obsess with introspection, we can even take the things here in John that he says are fruits of true Christianity, love of God's commands, a love of God, and a love of one another, and end up casting doubt on our faith. Have I kept the commands of God enough? Is my love for God and my love of neighbor what it should be? And the answer, brothers and sisters, will always be this side of heaven, a resounding no. John is not saying you can have assurance only when these things are perfect in you, only when you perfectly obey the commands of God, only when you perfectly love God, only when you perfectly love your neighbor, then you can have assurance. He doesn't say that. He's merely posing the question in a way, are these, thing, are these things present and growing in your life? Are these things there? If so, praise God, rest assured that these are marks of God's work of grace in you. And if not, look to Christ, look to Jesus. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the one who makes you right with God. And so go back, don't, don't be, if you're, if you're bogged down wondering if you're truly a Christian, go back to that. Are you trusting in Christ? A love for God's commands, a love for God himself, and a love for God's people. These are evidences of God's grace and assuring fruits that we belong to Jesus. Are they evident in your life? I didn't say are they perfect, are they evident? Is it clear that these things mark you? And when, they're, and when, when, and when you don't obey God's commands like you should, and when you don't love God like you should or love his people like you should, you confess that. Are you trying to, to seek to grow in these areas? Are they increasingly marking you? If so, friend, be encouraged and keep striving after the Lord. Keep walking with Christ. Keep rooted in his word. Keep growing in your love for God. Keep expressing a love for his people. And when you fall short, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We run to that. We cling to that hope. 
and we keep walking in love. We keep growing in God's word. We keep growing in our love for God and we keep growing in our love for one another. Brothers and sisters, these are characteristics of the one who has true saving faith. Be encouraged in these things and be encouraged to grow in them for God's glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word and instructing us by it. Father, we know that there are days and seasons in our lives when we begin to wonder and cast doubt upon where we stand before you at times. Lord, and there are many reasons for that. Sometimes we've taken our eyes off the gospel and we're forgetting what grace is and who, who we are and what you've done for us in Christ. Father, we thank you that you've given us these identity markers. You've not left us to, to wonder about whether or not we're truly following Jesus. But Lord, you show us this is how we may know we have eternal life. Are these things true of us? And so Father, would you help us to be diligent in our introspection of our own lives, in our examination, our evaluation of our own lives. And Lord, my prayer is that you would keep us from the dangers of two extremes. The danger, Lord, of never thinking about our relationship with you. Not having introspection at all, not thinking about, are we walking your ways? Lord, keep us from that danger. Help us to be deliberate in our examination of our own lives, to make our calling and election sure. Father, the other danger is that we would be overly introspective and that we would overly get bogged down in every little thing and, and wonder, the least little, least little motive, the least little action, the least little thing that pops up in our lives that, that we would be paralyzed and lack assurance. Father, help us to realize that we were made right with you because of Jesus and him alone. And Father, would you help us to walk as a Christian then walks in love, a love for your word, a love for you, and a love for others. We confess, Lord, that's not perfect. And so we ask for your help in growing us in these things to honor you and to be assured that we belong to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.